Hello and welcome to the Sky Time podcast with me, Simon Cousins. This is the podcast that promotes Sky and profiles the people that drive the island's economy. It's also a celebration of Sky's vibrant history, culture and environment and aims to gently persuade visitors to spend more time, get off the beaten track and experience more of what our island has to offer. My guest this week has just returned to the UK after taking the new sky flag on a marathon 2,800 nautical mile journey across the Atlantic in a rowing boat. Mark Seeley, along with Amy, Gemma and Will, were the fourth Genesis team in the Talisker Transatlantic Rowing Challenge. Welcome to Sky Time, Mark. Thanks, Simon. Morning. Now, firstly, congratulations on the achievement. But before we talk about the challenge itself, I just want to explore your background and why you decided to take on this challenge. It probably boils down to um, watching a documentary some oh, five or six or so years ago with um, James Cracknell and Ben Fogle, who, who did this race Um and, and probably that was the trigger, really, of just literally sat at home on the sofa um, thinking, yeah, that's fascinating. I'm going to do that and, I'll, and see if I can have a piece of that. Of, of course, you float that idea initially and everyone says, oh, yeah, really, that'll never happen. But little by little, the project, you know, gradually, gradually, gradually came together. And um, probably, like I say, five or six years later from that thinking, yeah, I can do that. I have indeed done that. So um, that's how it began. And were you fit? Were you a rower? No, averagely fit and no rowing experience, which isn't terribly unusual. I think quite a few people that go into this are are non-rowers, for sure. You know, some are, clearly, but there are quite a few that are just, you know, average club sportsmen, and I I was no different. I played some semi-professional football and um, you name it, could turn my hand to to, to most things in the sporting front, from golf to a bit of tennis, etc., etc., and um, soon became a rower, really. And in terms of fitness, one of the things that the organisers say is you have to be appropriately fit. And I think that's a very, very crucial point. This is a a 3,000 mile journey. Um, It's not a sprint. It's a keep plodding, keep plodding, keep plodding away. Um, And and we did for 50 days. (laughs) And how long did you train for? So your ongoing training, um, just in terms of know aerobic you know we were doing that all the time i mean the heat of the project um i guess we were two and a half three years where we were trying to sort of pull the whole project together so you're doing a lot of background training again you know from from rowing on the air to cycling to just keeping you know as fit as you can and then and then of course getting out on the boat at every opportunity for two things really is to a probably lesser extent fitness but you know to make sure that you know you can row the thing you know your boat you you know you practice your routines you practice your changeovers and there is a minimum number of hours that the organizers ask you to prove and document as well you know to make sure well a you can do it and b you're safe at sea uh, so you know we did that over a sort of two three year period leading up to the start and how did you go about establishing if you could survive all four of you in a rowing boat for 50 days together from a mental point of view? We didn't. We were very aware of that question um, and, and very aware of the logistics of all of that. 
um, we, we, we spend a lot of training rows together um, and we spend a good deal of time together, but we were aware that there was nothing quite in that, you know, testers is actually the 50 days on a rowing boat that's 29 feet long. And, and for the most part, well, bearing in mind, we didn't know each other. I mean, Amy and I had known each other for two and a half years. Amy and I had known Gemma since the summer, um, although I'd known Will, you know, for a bit going back. So to be honest, you know, I, I wouldn't say that we didn't have a few crosswords and a few, you know, difficult moments, but for the most part, you just, you know, you're combined in your efforts to get across there. And the only way to get across there is sometimes you just got to swallow your pride and think, well, actually, I don't agree with this, but if it gets me another day into the row and another day closer to Antigua, you know, we were, we were all ad- adults and we did what we had to do and we got across, um, as you say, in 50 days. You mentioned the hardest part is getting to the start line. And I remember speaking to the Bristol Gulls when they were training around Sky last year. And, and they spoke about the huge fundraising effort that was needed just to get to that start line. How did you go about fundraising? Yeah, um, the Bristol Gulls are absolutely right. The, the You know, the biggest issue with this... So, you, know, you know, part of the logistics for a second in terms of crew members and, uh, you know, the, the people in the boat, but physically to purchase the boat, purchase the equipment, um, to take care of shipping fees, to take care of the entrance fees is, you know, it's no small amount of money. So in, inevitably you go sort of door knocking on the, um, on the sort of corporate market. And um, I mean, it's a huge global event with a massive amount of coverage. So, you, you know, you contact everybody you can from friends, family to businesses and businesses predominantly to say for X thousand pounds, you will put your logo, your brand on the side of the boat. Will social media as much exposure for you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and try and put a commercial deal together so that in exchange for X pounds, as I said, we'll brand the boat up and, um, you know, try and get them as much exposure as you can. And, not easy in in lockdown i mean a lot of a lot of our work was done prior to lockdown but we hadn't finished the job off so so trying to talk to businesses about sponsorship um in lockdown last year was was especially tough without a doubt so take us back to the 12th of december last year and you're on the starting line in la gomera what were your emotions at that point? Uh, strangely and i think i know why it was very emotional probably more so for the family that were there watching your departure. I don't think for me personally, and I don't think probably for my fellow team members, we were probably terribly emotional about the whole thing because you're, I think, relieved to be going because it's been, you know, two, maybe three years in the making and for some teams probably longer than that. So you're like, wow, at long last we can actually make a start. You're there for two weeks prior to the 12th as well, doing fine tuning. So that gets you champing at the bit because you're there for two weeks. You can see the sea, you can see where you're going. I think your emotion at that point is we just want to get going. Um, I think the emotional side, again, for me personally, probably kicked in probably after about a week or so, because after a week or so, you know, you're doing pretty well, you're making progress. But I, I, I think for want of a better phrase, I mean, I think I hit the, you know, an emotional wall of like, you know, wow, I've done, I've done a week. I've probably got another four or five, six weeks to go. And I can't get off of this. 
then inevitably you start thinking about home and you know the loved ones that you've left behind and then you've got to process all of that you think i'm a week at sea i can't do anything about this now you have to process probably the emotional side for I mean, for me personally i think other people have said much the same that you process all that emotional stuff then of wow i'm here i chose to do this everybody has sat phones so i mean i got a good deal of support as i think we all did from just making a call at home and you know and of course home say it's great you're doing really well we're all fine we're all tracking you we're all watching you we're all following you on the app etc cetera, etc cetera. just you know best foot forward crack on and see you in antigua and then eventually i, I think you know cut the days of processing those emotions you go yeah the, the best way for me to see the family next is to darn well finish and in terms of on board the boat, how quickly did you as a team settle into a, a rhythm? And it and was it the rhythm that you planned in terms of your changeovers, etc.? You get into it real quick, you know, instant really. We we decided, and I think it was the right thing for us to do. Some fours rode three up at a time. Of course, there were four of us. So we simply said two boys were in one cabin, two girls were in the other cabin. So we would row boy, girl for two hours, swap, next boy, girl would row for two hours. And we settled into that really quickly. I think we were just accepting that, you know, you get a knock on the cabin door after two hours. And even though you were fast asleep, it's like, you know, well, this is what we agreed we would do. And you change and you recycle your shifts every two hours. And somehow the body gets used to it quicker than I thought, to be fair. Uh, Don't get me wrong. You're tired, and quite a bit of that is on autopilot because it's just sort of like, well, I was, I was, I've been asleep for two hours, and now I'm back on the oars. We had problems then after 1,200 miles because we had um, electrical issues, so we had power issues, which meant our auto helm wouldn't work. So we had to manually steer the last 1,800 miles of the race, and that was one of those just. And you just sort of like, you really looked at him and you think, oh, no, I just can't believe this. So so then we had the strangest shift pattern then because somebody's got to steer all the time, 24-7, somebody's got to steer. We couldn't then justify rowing two up with the person steering because there just wouldn't be enough rest all the time. So then we rowed either one up or two up with one steering for the remaining 1800 that was tough we probably rode one up for about a third of the time and we rode two up probably two thirds of the time always with someone steering so if we thought we were having not a great deal of sleep with the original plan the plan number two was even worse but no choice this is where we are. That's really interesting because following your journey and the journey of all the teams on the app, I was interested to see the distance that was covered by each team. The The, the winning crew, Row for Cancer, covered 2,700 nautical miles. You as a team covered 2,803. Was that largely down to the fact that you were manually steering as opposed to Autohelm? Yes, for, for certain that was, a, that was a big part of that. I mean, we probably did it the old-fashioned way, quite literally. You know, the, the organisers, we phoned in and we, you know, in a bit of sort of like, you know, we, we've lost our power, so the auto helm's gone. And it was very much, this is how people used to do it years ago. You've got a compass. The compass will do you just fine. 
So you just literally, we just literally rode off a bearing all the time with an auto helm. That's literally adjusting the rudder. Well, I wouldn't necessarily say, but quite by the second, but you know, that's moving you 24 seven without your intervention. So we just did the last 1800 miles the old fashioned way. We had a bearing. We decided that we were going to roll on that bearing for, you know, for half a day and then we'd work, you know, so yes, absolutely. Um, doing it off a compass doesn't make that any easier from a distance point of view, for sure. And what about weather? Did you have to change course to avoid particularly bad patches of weather? Not really, a, a little bit. We had a couple of days where the weather was absolutely against us. So we went to what they call sea anchor, para anchor for a couple of days. You sort of maybe think for a second, let's just head south or north or whatever you decide to do to see if you can get around a weather pattern. The reality is you can't really. So we had a couple of days on literally sea anchor where you go on sea anchor. You dive in the cabin and try and get the best rest you can and treat it for what it is. And then the following morning you come out, the sea stopped doing its stuff. You pull the parrot anchor in and you set off again. Tell me, Mark, what were the nights like? Because I would imagine that that's pretty difficult to get used to out there in the inky blackness, not knowing what's around you. That was weird, I think. Yeah, because you just couldn't see anything. The one thing that you could hear, though, were some of the swells are so big, most of the swells just keep rolling on, but certain wave patterns will, will actually break and, and you can hear those crashing. And of course, you're in the dark and you think, wow, that was just landed not very far from us. And, you know, we had a couple sort of land on you, sort of half over you. And, you know, which is, you know, very difficult when you think, like, I don't know what's going on there. You're obviously aware of the severity, maybe, of the sea that you're in by the movement. I think we probably all said that in, in many ways, ignorance was bliss. And we did our best rowing from a distance point of view, probably at night. I think for two reasons. One, it wasn't hot, so you rowed, we rowed better because you weren't so fatigued by the sun, I, I suppose. And also, it's like there's no point in thinking about it. There's no point in wondering what's out there. We can't see what's out there, so you might as well just row. And I, and I, and I think that worked quite well for us, to be fair. <laughs> Coming out of the nights into the daytime, what were the highlights? Did you have any aquatic wildlife encounters? Yeah, we we did. We dolphins by the hundred, quite literally, lots and lots of dolphins. Most dolphins appeared on my birthday, which was the 29th of December, which was quite spooky. It was literally, and even we just said, we can't believe there were so many. And it was like, wow, you know, something that I'll personally never forget. So lots of dolphins, lots of fish. A few sharks, half a dozen, ten sharks maybe, paid a visit, circled for a while and disappeared. We had a bit of a moment because um, we were circled by a blue marlin for, oh, I can't remember now, but for an hour or so, that was big, like 18, 20 feet, and he came up to the boat real quick. We thought it was a shark to begin with, and it's like, whoa, that's not a shark, that's a blue marlin. And, of course, we were aware that a couple of other boats at that time had been speared by a marlin and actually punctured the boat. Wow. Um, and, left, and left the beak or the horn, you know, through the boat. And teams had had to obviously do a repair job. So we were a bit, whoa, is he going to, you know, have a go at the boat? Because I think 
fish congregate underneath the hull of the boat for the shade. The blue marlin goes, aha, there's some fish under that boat, not that he knows it's a boat, um, tries to catch the fish, kill the fish, eat the fish, whatever, and then sort of makes a, fit of a fist of it and spears the boat. So we were like, oh, are we going to be another one that ends up having to patch a hole? But uh, um, anyway, that wasn't the case. We we're all hoping that we see some some whales or a whale. That was a, a disappointment, but we we're all hoping to see a whale. Some crews did, but but we didn't. And then the closer you get to Antigua, the more birds you see in the sky, which is always quite nice, you think. And we were probably only like a week out, and you think, like, well, there's an awful lot of birds in the sky now. Land is obviously getting a bit closer, which is a which is a nice thought or a nice feeling. So, were there any points in the journey because you faced lots of challenges that you thought, as a team, as a crew, we might not finish this, or was that never in doubt? Never in doubt. No, didn't didn't even think about it. Didn't really have those conversations. E- even with the you know rowing off the compass, as the organisers kept saying, you know, crews just used to do this, and of course we. We called in all the time, and everybody said, "You know, your line's good. You, you know, you're you're going the right way. Or not the right way, but you've you've got a, you know you've got a good line in at the minute." And um, yeah, just keep going. And yeah, we we did. So I don't I don't think that was ever in doubt. We were a week slower than we probably would have been if we had been on autopilot. Which you know, you just go, "Well, that's a bit disappointing," but you know suck it up it, it goes with the territory and yeah so that was the only sort of slight disappointment um we'd have been in a week earlier probably if we had the auto helm but you know but hey and how many days provisions did you have because as you say you you expected to be a, a week quicker the last crew that finished was uh, about 73 days they must have uh, been struggling for for food and and what have you yeah i suspect that they were probably getting a bit thin we took 55 days worth of provisions and then i can't i can't think how many additional wet meals we took on top of that probably another two weeks so we probably had food for 60 70 days not that we needed the extra ones because we were in we were in 50 so we had yeah so we had all our wet meals so so you take dry meals, which is the ones that you eat as, as part of the race rules. You take another, I can't remember what it is actually, but it's another sort of two weeks worth of what they call wet meals. So if you can't make water and you're struggling to desalinate your water, you've got a couple of weeks worth of wet meals, which literally, you know, you just open those and eat those, but you can't eat those to qualify for the unsupported rules under the um, under the, the terms of the race without permission from the organisers. So we had 55 days worth of dry meals, and, yeah, so we had a few days left of those. We knew we were on target for sort of 49, 50 days, and we just kept eating and ate very well towards the end because you think, like, just, you know, being a bit hungry, we've got plenty of food, we might as well eat it. So describe the feelings when you first spotted land and rode across the finishing line in Antigua. Oh, for us and all crews, I know, have this conversation. In a perfect world, you want to be, you want to have all of that happen in the middle of the day. So we got to the first Antigua checkpoint at the very early hours of the morning. So we phoned the race organisers and said, right, from there, we reckon you could be in by sort of three o'clock and then you 
have the briefest of conversations and such as your keenness to get off the boat, I suppose, putting it bluntly, do you want to sort of tread water so that you can get in in daylight? And the answer to that is no. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, of course, then for us, you know, you keep going, you keep going. So all we could see then was the light, but that's still hugely like, you know, wow, all of those lights there are on Antigua. And that was just uh, one of those feelings, Simon, that you really struggle to put into words that just sort of like, whoa, that's what we've been, you know, rowing for 49 and a three quarter days for. But then you thought, then of course you follow the island rang and weather was quite bad for us coming in. So you hit the island to the north and then follow it down uh, to get into English Harbour. Yeah, bewildering really. Crossing the finish line is just, well, I'm not sure I can even put that into words really. The emotion is at such a level, even now thinking back of complete dumbfoundedness in a sense of like just, yeah, everything, every bit of emotion that you've got in your body spills out at that moment. And then, of course, you the, the first thing you do then, you cross the finishing line, and every, you know, the safety boats and the boats that come and greet you, that's the shot that you want to let your flares off. So that's the four of us stood on the boat or holding your flares. So I've had that picture blown up. So I've got a picture, you know, that's a metre wide and three quarters of a metre high that's on the top of my stairs. So every time I go down the stairs of the morning, the one picture I see is the four of us holding our flares, having just crossed the finish line. So, And how did you celebrate yeah. when you got off the boat? So so you do the flare bit, and then you've got about another 15 minutes just to row to um, just the quayside. And again, that's like the next bit of emotion. So you do the first bit. And again, it is what it is, slightly more subdued this year than, than other years because of lockdown. Probably there are about, you know, a tenth of the people there. But we all had family there, so that was pretty amazing, obviously, to 50 days waiting to see your folks and loved ones. So that was pretty special. Then the first the first bit of joy is um, food, quite frankly. So, you know, you hand your passports in and do your arrival bits and pieces and then the organisers very kindly sit you down at a table with a chicken salad, which I think we all managed to eat. Well, I'm not sure we ate it. We probably inhaled it, really, because it's just uh, freeze-dried food for 50 days, this most beautiful, fantastic, fresh chicken salad and water and Coke and just like all normal food. So just to sit and eat that meal was, yeah, wow, really. Um, and that for us by now was sort of six o'clock in the morning so daylight had arrived and then you all do your stuff really which was you know for me taxi with the family back to the villa and for me I was always adamant I was I wasn't going to shave for the 50 days which I didn't so I had a huge great big gray beard so I got back to the villa and the first thing I was desperate to do was clippers razor um shave and tea and coffee and breakfast and more food and I think that's probably so I was in Antigua for a week with the family I think all I did really was swim eat and sleep swim eat and sleep for the for the seven days just to try and get some um, energy back into the back into the body you know and how long did it take for your land legs to come back oh they haven't entirely come back I mean they've probably 95% come back now and we got one on the 1st of February, so what's it now, the 9th of March, what's that, about five weeks, I guess. So for the first two or three weeks, and certainly the morning, 
that morning that we that we landed i was two yards to the right two yards to the left um it was just i don't i don't think i've ever been that drunk in my life it was you know everybody was laughing their head off it it was impossible to walk in a straight line um I mentioned at the start that you had the the sky flag painted on the transom of the boat. What reaction did you get to the the flag in La Gomera and Antigua? Yeah, cer- certainly, probably more more in La Gomera because there was more there's more time to be aware of the team, the sponsors, and people that had helped you on your journey. So, and people taking photographs and things. So, not maybe quite the same in in Antigua because of just the the sheer logistics of getting four people sort of safely off the boat and yeah safely sat down and and sort of processed in a way of you know are you all right and um, you know and, and and get your food in. but but certainly it, it was a good story for us that certainly the organizers and other crews and other teams and obviously family and and, and everybody was aware of you know that the whole you know Isle of Sky connection. So um, yeah, obviously you know delighted you know delighted to do it. You're now back home and back into family and work routines. How's that process of getting back to normal life been for you? Yes, well, not necessarily it's a bit tough, but it's not been the easiest thing. There's the physical side probably sorted now, but it's taken quite a few weeks to try and get your sleep back together. I mean, I personally lost nearly three stone in weight, which was a which was a lot for me. So, I've put nearly two stone of that back on. So that's you know takes a while to sort of for, you know for the body. Can you get your sleep back together? You know, can you get your your diet back together? Exercise back together, and and, and then just the sort of like you know as you say the the normal family life bit really. Fifty days you were totally doing your own thing, and and of course now you're back into you know, it's breakfast, lunch, dinner, and normal life. And Monday, I mean, days had no meaning out there. So none of us wore a watch for 50 days. So daytime was as relevant or irrelevant as nighttime. You just rode two hours on and two hours <laughs> off. And, um, and everything back home is its all about, well, it's Saturday today. And on a Saturday, we do X. There's one thing for sure. There's on a Saturday when you're rowing the ocean. On a Saturday, you row like you did on a Friday and a Thursday and a Wednesday. So... <laughs> It just, yeah, it just takes a little while just to put normal life, put the pieces back together. So finally, was this a once-in-a-lifetime challenge or has this sparked a desire for more adventures? Oh, there'll probably be some other adventures. I'm not sure what they are. And everybody, I think, says the same thing. And certainly for me, it's had a massively profound effect on me in terms of, making you realize what life's about what i'm about what family's about yeah quite colossal and i went to sea with high blood pressure from like you know running a business and da 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 and took tablets for high breast high blood pressure i've had the medication reduced by half because uh, i've got low blood pressure now which is all great it's all positive it's all fantastic and so you know so it's had a profound effect on me emotionally physically what's around the corner i don't know I probably said at the time that I wouldn't do it again. Now there's more than a little bit of me thinks I might just have to do it again. You know, never say never. So anybody ever thinking about this, I can't rate it highly enough. The most fantastic thing I've ever done in my life by a colossal margin. 
everything about it from start to finish was just, yeah, awesome. Absolutely awesome. Well, Mark Seeley, congratulations once again and good luck for the future and any further adventures that you undertake. Thank you very much, Simon. Cheers. And that's all for this edition of the Skytime Podcast. If you have a story or business to promote, email simon at simoncousinsmedia.co.uk. Please also get in touch if you'd like to sponsor Skytime or advertise your business on the next podcast. Until then, stay safe. I give up.